Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. It is a podcast about board games, and if you didn't know that, please turn it off now. Our Patreon is now live, Mark. How excited are you? I'm tingly. And I'm glad everyone sent in ideas and suggestions and stuff like that, and we read them all. Because like I say, if I don't read them, I can't ignore them, because that's how it works. So on today's show, we are going to talk about a game called New Frontiers. It is another in the long line of spacey-type games. But first, we're going to talk about a game we played last year, then games we played this week, news and why it doesn't matter, and our feature of this week, which is... We're going to talk about how many versions is too many. How many versions is too many. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Fabulous. So on the topic of the Patreon, uh, one commonly requested feature is to entirely mute out Walker's voice. We're testing out some prototype technology now. We're not really sure how it's... No, Walker. No, but I can't hear you. This is... No, stop. How dare you say that about America? Anyway, but we are going to give you a full breakdown of all the Patreon levels and stuff at the end. If you don't care about any of that, we'll let you know when you should tune out. Because, again, we don't want to corrupt too much of the podcast with talk of filthy lucre and self-promotion. So, with that in mind, let us hurtle onward into games we played last week. What did you play last week, Walker? Played XCOM, the board game, which is another app-driven game, which is fantastic. We haven't had it out in a while. I never had a chance to try the expansion, so I'm so glad we did. I still really love this game. It's more of just, you know, rolling dice over and over, setting up your defenses and trying to get successes. But still, it's it's very... Uh, the way the app works, it really raises the tension up and gets you involved in the game, and I still really like it. Haven't played it. It's hard to mess up on real-time cooperative dice rolling. I've played a lot of versions, and, you know, the fundamental formula just seems pretty sound. True, and it's it's all about making sure there is a a choice window there, and and they do it in this game, so I really like it. Yeah, I've I've heard mixed reports about the XCOM board game. It's a really hard license to do well in a board game context because XCOM, I mean, one of the reasons why the XCOM formula is so successful in PC gaming is that it is many, many different things all at the same time. And so there have been some other games that kind of sort of attempted to, to do it, and they got various elements, better or worse, but, and of course the FFG version has its detractors, but I'm, I'm somewhat interested in giving it a try. What do you play this week, Mark? We played Quest for Eldorado Heroes and Hexes. This is the expansion to Quest for Eldorado, which is the Reiner Knizia deck-building race game. I quite like the Quest for Eldorado, but I, you know, like any other deck builder, you want more available cards in the market, and there's more opportunity for variety. And given that Eldorado is a map-based game, there's always the possibility for more maps. And to that end, the expansion introduces a very small number of additional market cards, so it's somewhat unusual in the the, the general vein of deck builder games, but it introduces a couple of asymmetries right from the start, as well as a further asymmetry where if you go a little bit out of your way by the second tile, you get an incredibly powerful card, and everybody gets a different one. And those parts I thought were good. Those parts I enjoyed. I thought they were fine. But the primary new element, which is the uh, aforementioned hexes, whereby sometimes the cost of moving into a space instead of having to spend a card to move there, instead you just get this random bad thing off of a stack. And those felt decidedly unkinetia-like in a number of ways to me, and I don't mean that as a compliment. In fact, that's one of the worst insults that I could give a game, especially if it's designed by Reiner Knizia. Some of them were fine. They just added a dead card into your deck, as per normal curses in Dominion. Some of them were, I think, genuinely interesting, namely ones that allowed all of your opponents to move one space to their choice. But there were a couple that I really didn't like. Uh, Some of them involved targeted aggression. One of them involved you being moved a 
couple of spaces by somebody else, and that led to the possibility of some sort of lockout situation, whereby if you're forced to cross a curse space, someone can just keep moving you back every time, and you have to draw a new curse later on. Suffice to say that the overall that overall effect on the game I, th- I thought was borderline negative. I want to try it again, but I, I really wasn't impressed overall. There are some elements that, I, uh, that I'm going to try to rip out and introduce in the normal Quest for Eldorado, because I still really, really like Quest for Eldorado. But the hexes just felt weird to me. What did you think? No, I have the exact same notes here. It's the new Chaos hexes were terrible. They just slowed the game down with zero improvement to the game. I didn't like it at all. It just led to this, you know, I'm going to take this chance. And like, oh, it didn't really affect me, and I got way ahead. Or, oh, I'm boned for the rest of the game. So, yeah. But, like you said, getting the extra adventurer in your deck, everything else, I really liked all of that stuff. It's a shame, because all the new maps involve that element, the, the those kinds of spaces. And there were already spaces in the base game where that didn't cost symbols from your hand. They involved other effects, and those were great. Some of them were good, some of them were bad. But they were they were they had a good effect on the game, and they really mi- mixed things up, especially if your deck wasn't tuned properly for the tile where you were. But yeah, the curse spaces were just I I did not enjoy them. I'll try them again. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe once we get to know all the symbology, and they'll go, it'll be much smoother. Like it's like oh, you get to do, you have to do that, you have to do that much faster. Maybe it won't be so bad. But on the first play, not fun. And that's the new expansion. What's the expansion? Is there a name for the expansion? Yes, it's called Heroes and Hexes, the expansion for Quest for Eldorado. Nice. I finally got my uh, copy of Kitchen Rush in, and I have to say that is everything that I wanted it to be. There's a video game called Overcooked, where you're, you know, screaming around the kitchen, all this crazy stuff is happening, you're trying to get the orders out, it's like Cake Mania or any of those other games, and it gives you that same feel. It's a cooperative game where these orders come in, and you have to go get the ingredients and cook the dishes and have it exactly on the right plates and then get it out and you know, have enough money in your restaurant and pay your workers, and I it, it hits all the buttons that I wanted it to. So I'm very happy with it. There's been a number of real-time restaurant games, and the previous ones didn't really do it for me, but uh, you, you you speak so highly of Kitchen Rush. It was designed by uh, David Turchi, which, which I, I know I'm mispronouncing his name. I'm sorry. Which seems like a bit of a departure, because mostly he develops, you know, Mind Clash games, relatively heavy, detail-oriented Euros, but you say that Kitchen Rush is very, very straightforward? It is. I'm looking forward to giving it a try. And that is Kitchen Rush. Kitchen Rush by Artipia and Stronghold Games. So I played a bunch of rounds of Codenames last week. We had some new people show up at our uh, public gathering, and one of the things we do with new people is we play Deception with them. We played that. Uh, We played Codenames. And I got to say, just in terms of the great controversy of 2018, which is Decrypto versus Codenames, I will repeat, we're not 100% sure we were playing Decrypto correctly, so if I get the chance to try it again, I will. But here's one of the reasons why we really like Codenames. For us, and this may not be the same for everybody, Codenames is a raucous social affair where the other teams are yelling out bad suggestions to each other, whereby there's great moments of, of a loud triumph and even louder, a louder anguish in defeat. And there's constant table talk and everyone's discussing everything. And uh, that's that, that's the primary way in which we enjoy it. We absolutely enjoy the game mechanisms. No, I can tell you, because this is a game that I brought across Europe. And they do not play it that way. They looked at me like I was from a different country. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like I, like you know, like you exactly like you said, they someone gave a clue and I would, I, I would start jabbing at the other team. It's like, oh yeah, that, that mayonnaise was totally made, you know, and just stuff like that, like we do, like totally, you know, just messing with their heads and trying to distract. Yeah, so, so the people who are playing Code Dames 
as a silent affair where, where as, as though you're playing in a library and everyone's got their head down and, and working it purely as a logic puzzle, I can absolutely understand why Decrypto does it for you in a way that Codenames doesn't. But one of the reasons why... I've talked about this in the context of Spyfall, actually. Spyfall is a game that mechanically I really, really appreciate, but the experience of playing it I find dreadfully un, uninspired because it's it, it thrives on silence and the sort of silent tension, which is not what I want in a party game type of environment. I don't mind tension, but I would rather it be a tension where everyone's constantly verbally and socially engaged. It's one of the reasons why I love The Resistance so much, because it's endless talking, you know, and unsurprisingly that I enjoy that. Anyway, so Codename, that, those two games of Codenames really reminded me why we like it the way that we do. In different groups, it probably wouldn't be that way. And indeed, if everybody played it with a silent, studious air, maybe we would prefer Decrypto. But when it comes to word and clue matching games, if we can have it with a whole bunch of fun table talk or without, we'll take it with. And that's one of the reasons why we enjoy Codenames the way we do, and so that was Codenames. Next on my list is Wildlands. It's uh, a, a new game from 2018. It got quite a bit of buzz. 2018's done with. Yeah, get, get with the now. All right, next game. Um, no, so Wildlands is a, another, you know, a PvP card-driven game that I found incredibly uninspired and awfully boring and right out of the 80s as far as I was concerned. it's You draw your cards, you play your best hand. It's a lot of take that. It's a lot of, oh, I got this special card and you didn't. And in my opinion, it just it was not. It's I've tried it three times now and have yet to see a gem inside it. So part of me is beginning to suspect. Now, I'm, I'm of two minds about Wildlands. I seem to enjoy it more than you do, but that isn't necessarily saying a whole heck of a lot. But I'm beginning to get the impression that you just don't like hand management. Even though there are some games that have hand management in them, I've seen you seen you assert that you know games with hand management are nothing but luck. It's like, oh, I didn't get the card I need. It's like, well, sometimes you have to sit on the card you need rather than... Rather no, than... I, Great Western Trail is all about hand management. I love that because there's tons of spaces that lets you cycle through and get the cards you want. There's none of that in Wildlands. It's like, okay... That I, is completely untrue. I draw the three cards at the end of my turn, and this is what I'm going to have for my next turn. I might have some of those special cards that lets, let me draw more cards, but... Those are far and few between. Yes, and the moment about when you choose to use them. See, when you play the game, all you ever do is use those special cards to draw more cards. In Wildlands, (laughs) there are cards that can be used to to move any character or draw extra cards or do an interrupt. And a lot of the game seems to be about choosing when and how to interrupt. Uh, Walker doesn't do that, though, because uh, the the, the hand plays itself, as far as he's concerned. Here's the thing about Wildlands. The substantive critiques are... All the criticisms that we've had about multiplayer conflict games, well, most of them anyway, Wildlands leans into with a vengeance. Because one of the ways you score a point in Wildlands is by knocking out an enemy character. And you only do that if you get the last hit. So if you go and attack somebody and they defend themselves successfully, what's happened is the two of you have burned through a lot of cards and possibly some wounds have been inflicted. And then the other player who wasn't involved in that fight laughs maniacally as they go swoop in, take the finishing blow, costing them fewer cards and getting a point in the process. This absolutely is present in Wildlands. Now, the interruption system kind of sort of adds... I'm not even going to say that it mitigates it. It kind of adds a, a layer to it, whereby the timing of how to snipe is altered a little bit. It is also the case that in Wildlands, uh, your starting setup can be incredibly determinative of your success in the game, and your starting setup is only half under your control at best. Where you set up your own people is a function of which five of ten cards you get at the start of the game, and the other 
salient feature of startup where your crystals are, which is what you go and collect for your other half of the point, that's completely random. There's no real way to control that. All of this is true, and as the game is playing, all those elements bother me. The strange thing is, is that it doesn't lead to a game as degenerate as it should be. I'm, I'm still trying to puzzle my head around why it even works as well as it does, which is to say, tolerably well. I compare this in my head, uh, for example, to a game like GKR. When we played Giant Killer Robots, it was a question of, oh, here are the rules, maybe there'll be some problems, but let's see how it goes. And it turns out that it leans hard into precisely these issues of, of choosing who to snipe at and player order problems in a very serious way. Wildlands, I, and if anything, it's kind of the reverse. I read the rules as like, oh, this is going to be degenerate, and then it's not. It's not amazing, but it's not degenerate. Anyway, Wallace designs, for me, tend to divide up into two camps, the, uh, generally speaking, the too simple and the too baroque, and I think that Wildlands definitely falls into the, the too, too simple area, but I will say this, and, I, I, and this is going to be a sincere question, Walker. What it's trying to do, namely a, uh, a four-player skirmish-type game, I don't know that it's been done better, with the possible exception of some games that allow you to play in teams. True. I'm saying if you take it for what it is and what it can accomplish, I'm, it is it is it is doing that. I want to do go quickly go back to the sniping thing, where there's sure. this one uh, magical race that is very hard on the offense. But once they're done the offense, then it's other people's turn, so it doesn't really matter. And now they're standing around with only two hit points each, mostly. And guess who's going to get picked on? Right, this poor team that only has guys that are worth you know two hit points, right? If anything, it's a little bit worse than that because their big trick, uh, as far as the magical, uh, you know, the, the magic users is, is that their most of their attacks are area attacks, which is great if people clump up. But if the wrong factions are in the game, or if you're only playing with two or three players, you're not going to get a whole bunch of targets of opportunity to to, to, to blast people. Look, I, I, I will say this: after each game of Wildlands, and I've only played twice, I have looked at the board position and the board state about halfway through and said, ah. If I'd, have, if I'd have made cleverer decisions, I would be able to make much, much better use of the resources available to me. And games of this simplicity don't often present that to me. Usually it's usually I'm not in a position to be like, oh, I could have been able to take fate into my own hands. I'm amazed that it works at all, but it doesn't work super well. That's, that's more or less where I am at Wildlands at this particular time. All right. And that was Wildlands by Martin Wallace. We got to play another couple games of Scythe of the Rise of Fenris. Here we are, of course, here at Swag, keeping up on the very cutting edge of eight months ago. And I have to say that uh, I thought that my least favorite expansion for Scythe was the Wind Gambit. And I've got to say, the Rise of Fenris is coming in hard to make me change my mind. It is the case that in the Rise of Fenris, what you have, and I'm not going to spoil anything here, is new stuff and then scenarios. And the scenarios kind of parcel in the new stuff. The new stuff has been mostly bad, I think. It's been a set of effects and goodies that are mild variations of things that are already present in the base game, let alone with the first expansion of Invaders from Afar. Basically, the design approach seems to have been come up with a list of these effects a mile long, throw them in a huge bag, and then parcel them out randomly over the course of the game without any rhyme or reason or any notion about faction balance or starting location advantage or considering considerations of geography, you know, all the things that make, I think, Scythe work, the considerations of geography and faction balance. So that part I was, I've been really unimpressed by overall, with some minor exceptions. What, what have you thought about nope, the new stuff? Exactly the same. Not, not really. I really like the new factions that they brought in. Yeah. I, if, they, if they just brought that in, that would be interesting. I think for people who play a lot of Scythe, this might be something, you know, very good for them because it totally changes everything up. 
but for people who just play it occasionally, I don't think there's going to be much there for them. Even the factions don't seem to have... Okay, well, now we're kind of getting into mild spoilers. Very mild spoilers. Skip to the next time code if you want to avoid them. One of the factions is just more random stuff. Again, it's we took a whole bunch of stuff and we shook it up in a bag and we're going to parcel out random effects uh, every every game. And that, again, sometimes they're going to be awesome, sometimes they're going to be terrible. And also it depends a lot on where you are geographically on the board because they don't have their own spot. They take somebody else's spot without, again, without going into too, too much detail. So that faction I don't think is very interesting. I think it's, it's, it's relatively sloppily designed. The other one's fine. I mean, in terms of components, it's all great. It's all the standard, the standard yes. side stuff. And then there's then there's the scenarios. What has your impression been of the scenarios so far? Again, without getting into too much detail. Not too much detail? Yawn. <laughs> <laughs> Uninspired, same old, you know, storybook tripe stuff. Nothing overly interesting. It's to me, it's like the end game conditions that the wind gambit introduced. But dialed up to eleven. In that, that's pretty much all all the scenarios have done to really mix up the the, the formula. It's like, oh, there's a new endgame scenario, and generally speaking, I found them unimpressive. I, I think that the base game of Sive more or less got it right. You know, the six stars is pretty good. You can do a rush strategy, or you can just try to conquer as much of the board as possible and not really care much about stars, or a mix of the both, whatever, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, the, the scenarios narratively haven't done anything for me. Mechanically, haven't done anything for me. Like one ended in three turns, and another one could have ended in the second turn. Yes, it was yeah unimpressive and unengaging. You know, I, I can forgive one, but both at the same time is is not there. So I really do think we're probably going to finish it just for the sake of inertia. Uh, but I really, I really am. This is solidifying my opinion that the way to do Scythe is with the first expansion and nothing else. Everything else just feels really ancillary to me. The other endgame conditions, even the airships, all that other stuff. It just, it's like. I don't want to be super cynical or ad hominem about this, but it's like Jamie Stegmeier had a couple of good ideas. And that's it. And just hasn't found a way to flesh out the system, which is fine. Not every system needs to be fleshed out. Not everything needs to be a legacy game of of linked campaign. Not that it's trying to be a legacy game. But, you know, we've got seven decent factions and a couple of afterthoughts, basically. And that's Scythe the Rise of Fenris. It sure is. My last game is Tobago. I've already talked about Tobago. If you've played the new game, Cryptid is very much like that, except it's just more of a board game than it is a, you know, quiz puzzle game. You're actually moving these ATVs around this cool jungle scape and digging up treasure and removing cubes, but it's very much the same of, you know, decreasing the chances of, you know, the treasure being in a certain area by using the geography and cards and stuff like that. I, I really like it. It had two new players. They really enjoyed it, and I can't I, you know, if you have a beginning group, I can't really stress this enough that this is a fantastic game. It's a wonderful intro experience. I don't like deduction games, but Tobago is probably my favorite of the bunch. And I, I, I enjoy it, despite the fact that it still feels a little bit... Look, it's not like uh, Sleuth by Sid Saxon, or not even necessarily as crunchy as uh, as scripted in some ways, although they're both very, very light games. But you, it still feels a bit like a deduction game or an induction game, uh, depending on how you want to slice it. And that's that's not nothing. So, yeah, I agree with you. Tobago is pretty good. Finally, I got a chance to play This Guilty Land. This is the second design by Holland Spiel that I've had a chance to try. This is by one of the co-founders, Tom Russell. And This Guilty Land seeks to be a representation of the politics of slavery in the uh, United States prior to the outbreak of the Civil War. I had very high hopes for it, both mechanically and thematically, after our very positive experiences with Meltwater, also by the same publisher, although different designer. 
And uh, I have to say I was very, very disappointed, and so were the people that I played with as well. Uh, primarily because I didn't really get a sense of an evocation of the theme or, or, or the, uh, the, the, the historicity of the design. Partially because, although superficially it looks a little bit like card-driven games, a la Twilight Struggle or any of the, the card-driven war games of that elk, or even of the, the lighter versions like 1960, The Making of a President, there's a very, very small number of different kinds of cards, and all the cards basically fall into a very small number of buckets in terms of effects. They are all named after historical events, and to be fair... Possibly the reason why I didn't think it particularly evocative is that most of these events are alien to me because I'm not I don't know a whole lot about that time period. Uh, but they don't have special effects key to them. They're just like, okay, this is one of the four types of cards that does this thing. And as a result, very quickly, you just feel like you're pushing pieces around, which is not just a missed opportunity. It's also desperately unfortunate because the game is very clearly supposed to be about the struggle around slavery. And the moment you write slavery out of the narrative and it becomes a purely mechanical experience, that gets straight into problematic territory. So the kind of discomfort that the designer was clearly trying to evoke, because in the uh, reading the rulebook, I was super pumped for this guilty land because the designer all, uh, was all about this game has a political message. If you don't like it, tough noogies. Somebody should feel uncomfortable about playing oppression, namely the people who are trying to further slavery. This is intentional. Sit with it and live with it. I'm thinking, yes, absolutely. Let's let's get uncomfortable. Games don't have to be fun. Uh, but the discomfort was actually coming from the from the game of leaving slavery out of the picture and how detached it felt from all of that. The only sense in which it was genuinely evocative of something that I think the designer wanted it to be evocative of was that it really gave you a picture of political stagnation because I flip a couple of chits, you play a card, you flip a couple of chits. Okay, I make a little bit of progress here. Now you take it back. You, you, you take a little bit of progress there. Oh, I have all these law cards. I can't pass a law because I don't control the house. I can't control the house. Okay. And even if I did control the house, you control the Senate. So, okay. And so it really did feel like political stagnation, which is not really the kind of... Exciting. It, it doesn't have to be exciting. Like, <laughs> Meltwater wasn't exciting, if you'll true, recall. True. A lot of other games that do a really, really good job of, of evoking a, a theme or being kind of distance don't have to be exciting. How about compelling, then? Exactly. It wasn't, uh, the word I would use, it was, wasn't engaging. It served both mechanically and thematically to disengage me from what was going on, and it became a rote mechanical exercise, even on top of the fact that in terms of criticizing it as a, as a game design, it really did feel like the cards were playing me, precisely because the card pool ends up being so small, the number of cards that enter the system tends to be very, very, very parsimonious, that really, you know, you play the cards you've got, and a lot of them are law cards anyway, and as I said... In order to pass a law, all the ducks need to be lined up in a row, and very frequently it's the case that you can't do that. So suffice to say that my experience with this guilty land were very disappointing on, on, on a number of different levels. It's uh, an admirable uh, attempt. It's a very, very interesting period of history. A lot of the design goals I thoroughly embrace. Uh, I just It just didn't evoke for me on a mechanical or thematic level what I was looking for. So those were my experiences with this guilty land. All right. That was games we played this week. And now for... Games from history. Well, we almost forgot to talk about this because <sighs> yeah. I almost wish I forgot that I played it. It's very, it's very appropriate that the Aurus, the as yet unnamed review intro segment, was Alien Artifacts. Yep, Alien Artifacts, a game by Portal. I play it every week. 
Just once a week? Just <laughs> I have it beside my bed. I play like a little solo version that I invented in my head every time I wake up. The only time we've even thought about this game, I think, after we reviewed it, was marveling that it was getting an expansion. Yes. Other than that, I don't think that it so much has crossed our minds. Not once. I'm thankful that I'm su- I have sufficiently forgotten the experience that I didn't remember to remind you that we, we reviewed this awful game called Alien Artifact. All right, and now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first on my list... Normally I would be excited for this, but for whatever reason I am not. It is The Lord of the Rings Journey in Middle-Earth. It's by Fantasy Flight Games. It's another giant dungeon-crawling, descent-type, app-driven game. My favorite publisher reuniting with my favorite theme. And, yeah, just yawn again. Like, I guess if you don't have descent, you don't have Imperial Salt because you didn't like those particular themes, and you really like Lord of the Rings, then you are in luck. Otherwise, then... But the one thing I did think was interesting in this particular thing, I actually had to watch a video. Like if you go to the like if you go to BGG, it's not even. Least, what what, are, be, what are videos? Are they like podcasts? They're like podcasts, except there's moving pictures. It's this new technology, I, I don't understand it. It's, okay. it's all this stuff coming out so quickly. So I I couldn't even find an entry for it on BGG. Mm-hmm. And so the Fantasy Flight uh, website doesn't even list the designers. I actually had to watch a intro video and pause it as it showed the box so I could get the designers. Because <laughs> nowhere in any of the descriptions or anything else did they even talk about the designers. It is by Nathan Hayjack. Hay- Hay- he uh, did Descent, some Descent expansions in the game. I and think if you just pass through the lobby of the Fantasy Flight Building, you work on a Descent expansion or two. Yeah, true. And Grace Holdinghaus, who did uh, Mansions of Madness. So maybe it'll be good. Some of the expansions, right? Must be some of the expansions. Good luck to them. Look, any, I, I suppose I should be encouraging a fantasy flight anytime they do something that isn't Star Wars. It's true. But that's all I can say. That's, and, <laughs> and that's that. So we've got some news coming out of Latvia. Your favorite Baltic State publisher, Wolf Designer, is going to be coming out with two releases, they say, this year. One of them is Guards of Atlantis 2, which is the sequel to Guards of Atlantis, which is my probably my favorite MOBA game. It's a marvelous, marvelous design. Anyway, it's going to be a standalone expansion, so a whole bunch of new characters, but you could play it ju- just with them. Although that's probably not going to be recommended. Uh, the designer says these are going to be a little bit trickier, but, you know, hey, whatever people want to do. And another game that's coming out is a game that I played a couple times in very early prototype form called Trick Shot. This is a two-player hockey game, which despite, again, not being engaged with the theme, the, the, the designer, Artem Nichapurov, joked that he needed my consultation because as a Canadian, I was the only one uh, appropriately qualified to comment on the hockey game. And I attempted to explain to him that he was, he was you know, barking up the wrong tree because I'm the wrong Canadian to consult on these matters. But... Trickshot is a very, very, very clever, almost abstract two-player dice game representation of hockey. It's like little little tactical logic, logical puzzles every turn, which is definitely something that you and I both like in the right contexts. And so I'm very much looking forward to seeing what happen, happens with that. I, we don't have dates yet on either of these two designs, and he says they're both going to come out in Kickstarter. And maybe even someday I'll even get Warpgate by... Wolf Designer, which uh, will probably come in forever in a day. It's probably being held up by... Chinese New Year. Chinese New Year. And so that's what we can look forward to Wolf Designer in 2019. All right, my last bit of little news is we have a a town, a city here in Canada. It's pretty big. It's called Toronto. Yeah, it's the only one, actually. It's the only village in in, in Canada. It it has a huge uh, snowmobile parking lot. Um, We call it the Big Smoke. 
Anyway, they have a board gaming cafe called Snakes and Lattes, and they are spreading all over the place. They're they're looking up to opening up 11 stores across America, and it's going to be huge. It's just further evidence that this hobby is growing and growing well if it's coming out by Snakes and Lattes because they, they do it right. Final thing I want to note, this is hardly any, any bit of news. This is more just my remarking on something that happened lately, and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that it hasn't happened before. We talked last week about the new Suburbia Deluxe Edition. Have you visited the Kickstarter page, Walker? I have not. This isn't even a plug for the game. This is a plug for a concept. The way they're doing it, and I think this is brilliant. I think every game should do it this way. You get to pick what colors of components you get in your box. As stretch goals, they're going to unlock new component colors, which, parenthetically, are also tied to different cities of the world. So, you know, Chicago is black for whatever reason. Rome is purple, I think, so you'd probably want to go for Rome. Uh, not a single Canadian city yet because, you know, there's only the one. So get, sure. get on that, guys. Uh, m- many smaller American cities have already been represented, but Toronto is actually, you know, it's got 17 moose in there. So Exactly. Population, I think they only have 1,800, right? Something like that. Basically, the way that the way it's going to work is there's going to have they're going to have n available player colors, and in your box you get to pick which ones you want. I don't know why. Uh, obviously, actually, I do know why they not everyone does this. The manufacturing overhead and difficulty might be considerable, but this just seems to be a great idea. A wonderful little bit of low manufacturing cost customization. Now the assembly gets more complicated, but what do I know? Uh, that just seemed really neat, and I, I I would like to see that in more Kickstarters. To be honest, I'm wondering. I'll have to read it now because I'm wondering if it's Kickstarter only. It's not going to be coming to retail, and that the game pieces will be on the outside of the box. What's retail, Walker? I know, right? Rough. Now onto the feature game of the week, which is New Frontiers by Rio Grande. It is another Race for the Galaxy type game. This is supposedly an actual board game as opposed to a card game or a dice game. Mark, put us in the timeline. This is actually a little bit tortured. So first there was Puerto Rico, which was and still is a very successful medium weight Euro game. And uh, Rio Grande wanted to make a card game version of... Puerto Rico, and they contacted a man by the name of Thomas Lehman, who's been in the industry for a long time and done lots of interesting work. And he adapted a CCG he was working on into being sort of Puerto Rico the card game. And what they told him was, this looks interesting, we are going to use none of it. And they went with something else to, to get the Puerto Rico card game, which was San Juan. And Thomas Lehman said, why don't I turn this into a game of its own? And that's how he came up with Race for the Galaxy, which was a card game, which was not quite Puerto Rico the card game, but it felt a lot like Puerto Rico the card game. Then that was adapted into a dice game called Roll for the Galaxy, Then there was a sort of hyper-stripped-down version of Race for the Galaxy called Jump Drive. And then what he did was, and this is how things come full circle, there's New Frontiers, which is the board game adaptation of Race for the Galaxy, which was the card game version of Puerto Rico. So basically what we have is Puerto Rico come again full circle in terms of the design pedigree. And for what it's worth, also in terms of, for, from my perspective, what happens in the actual gameplay experience. But on that topic, Walker, why don't you give us a, an incredibly unhelpful summary about what one does in New Frontiers? Well, New Frontiers is like a Euro engine builder with exactly zero theme. You're going to grab some planets from a bag randomly, and you're going to try to link them with your, your home ability because everyone gets a home sheet. So you're going to try to link these abilities together to create this engine and then buy developments to either further pump this engine. And you just have to make sure you never run out of money and hope you have the most points at the end of the game. Helpful, right? 
Very helpful. Now, we're both coming at this, I think it's important to stress, from relatively different perspectives because I've played a lot of Race for the Galaxy and I've played a fair amount of Roll for the Galaxy and you, I think, have played more Roll than you have Race. Correct. That's correct. But I don't think that either of our experiences with Roll for the Galaxy has been what you would call extensive, whereas I've played Race for the Galaxy well in excess of 100 times. So I, I'm not going to – I'm certainly no expert, but I'm at least relatively experienced with the design. I don't know what your experience is with Puerto Rico. I know you've played San Juan a fair number of times, but did you play Puerto Rico back in the day? That I was, did. That was before we met, also known as the good old days. Good old days, yes. No, I did. I, I wasn't a fan of it, but I can see its merit for sure. It, when I did play it, the few times I did play it, it always seemed to be the best choice. It's like, well, that role is obviously the best choice at this point. These goods are out. These are the best goods. They match what I have. You know, why are they giving me this choice? It's obviously I'm going to take those goods because they match the ones I have or, you know, they're the ones with the most money. And it just seemed like a series of, you know, the obvious best choices. And that, one of the other benefits of playing uh, Puerto Rico is that there's probably someone else going to be at the table who will be more than happy to inform you about what your obvious best choice is. This is also true. And yeah. or complain if you don't take what's the obvious best choice. Yeah. So I always explain it as the game that plays itself. Sure. So given that, I, I don't, I wouldn't go that far. I, I enjoy playing Puerto Rico if everyone else, else at the table is either comparably experienced or willing not to be a douchebag about it. Uh, but given that you weren't a huge fan of Puerto Rico, and I think that New Frontiers has a lot in common with Puerto Rico, why don't, why don't we start with that? In what ways do you think New Frontiers is better or worse? Than Puerto Rico? Yes. It was, if that is an unhelpful question... That is unhelpful. Well, okay. I, don't, I don't remember too much about Puerto Rico, so I don't really... Well, no, you just, said that it play, you just said that it plays itself and there's an obvious choice. So do you think that in New Frontiers oh. that it plays itself and or that there's an obvious choice? I do. I think once you've got your home... Your home established, and it, it has a sort of a theme to it. It's like you know, you know, sell goods, or or you're the military guy, or whatever. Then it gives you a direction to go, and that's what you're going to be starting off at. When you pick your planets, it's obviously well, this is the planet that I can settle now, so I'm going to take that one. Or I'm the military guy, and this one takes military, so I'm going to take this planet. And I need a little bit more military, so I have to get that development. So it's just sort of these obvious choices that go on during this game. Huh. And in what way... Okay, now I'm genuinely curious and a bit, conf, uh, a bit confused. In what way is it worse in New Frontiers than it is in any other engine builder? Whether it's one we both like, like 51st State, or one that some of us like and others don't, like Terraforming Mars. How, how, how is it the same, or is it worse? Well, Terraforming Mars, you have a bigger... You have a wider hand size, and you have more choices that you can go from, and they have a lot... There's a lot more going on, like... Here you have very you're very narrow paths. It's either you're settling planets or you're selling goods. I think they're the, the two main things you're doing. Whereas in Terraforming Mars, there's so much more you can do, and you need a bunch of little a bunch of smaller engines going at the same time. In in New Frontiers, I think you you can even go with just one engine going or two at the most, and you'll be fine. Wow, are you trying to destroy our credibility by being so grotesquely wrong? Like this is this is weird. New Frontiers for me is not. Is not any kind of stellar stellar gaming achievement, but your characterization of it as as all of these things being crushingly obvious, I think, is doing the game a disservice. Because first of all, you haven't even mentioned developments at all, and the developments that one needs to purchase in oh. order to make one engine. No, I, I did. I mean, saying that I said that during the intro that it's like this is my engine. I need to get these particular developments in order to settle these planets that I've taken because it matches my home system, and then you take those developments that you need. 
I'm well, saying you, you can spread out. You have there you, is your your home system is just one world among many, though. And if you rely too heavily, I've seen you do this actually. If you rely too heavily on making everything match your home world, well, then yeah, you've painted yourself into a corner before the game begins. And I'm saying, and what I'm pointing out is that in any engine building game, whether it's Fifty First State, whether it's Race for the Galaxy, whether it's New Frontiers, whether it's Puerto Rico, whether it's any of these things, if you say that all right at the start of the game, this first thing that I've got, whether it's the first world, whether it's the first action space, whether it's the first scoring ability, that everything I play has to be specifically consonant with the specific element of the engine, then yeah, the game's going to be trivial and not particularly engaging. True. So when when you asked me to compare it to Puerto Rico, a game that I thought played itself, you actually meant explain how it's different than Puerto Rico and how it's better and all no. these different things. Okay, no. I'm sorry, I got confused then. Which one did you mean? How am I supposed to say it? All right, here's the deal. I don't think that New Frontiers is as good as Race for the Galaxy, precisely because I, I do think that on a spectrum of engine builders, Race for the Galaxy has more difficult trade-offs involved. Precisely because, and this is a characterization of the designer, he thinks that Race for the Galaxy is a game about, you know, making lemonade from lemons. You've got this influx of cards, and the cards will... Sometimes, of course, you get exactly what you need. It's a card game. Things like that happen. The same is true of, of 51st State. The same is true of Terraforming Mars. The same is true of all these things. But more often than not, you're going to have to force an engine out of this noise that you've been given, random influx of developments and worlds. Now, granted, something that I should stress and that I think we'd both be on the same page, once your engine is in line, once it's just time to pump that engine, then the game absolutely more or less plays itself because you just, okay, I've got all my ducks in a row. There are absolutely further decisions you can make in order to maximize your your secondary choices. But once everything's in a row, you're just pumping it as hard as you can, right? Correct. Yeah. But... In terms of New Frontiers, specifically this, this aspect of getting the engine going in the first place, it's actually chopped up these two elements of the engine into two different buckets. In Race for the Galaxy, all your developments and all your worlds come from the draw deck. In New Frontiers, the worlds come from the big bag that you talk about, and oh my lord, the bag is big. It's a big bag. It's such a big bag. I like big bags, and I cannot lie. And the developments are all available at the outset. They're all just on this, this display. And, it, you know, that, that is one of those changes that you very often see in iterative designs. It's like the difference between Agricola and Caverna, for example. In Caverna, all the special rooms are just face out in a display right from the beginning of the game. And you have to look at them sometimes and just make a decision at the outset about how you're going to be trying to use them efficiently. Now, as far as that change is concerned, I actually don't know what your preference is with respect no, to those two differences. I, I, I always reference back to Marco Polo. We have to sit at the beginning of the game and map out what you're going to do. And I'm, I'm beginning to prefer that over over the, the alternative of, you know, surprise or never getting. It's like, oh, I know this card's in here. I really need this for my engine and just never getting it or, you know, someone else gets it or just having everything available. And that way you can see different things emerge like even if it's not what you've decided to go with you can say oh if i had just done that or i can see or if he could do it this way and you can see how you want to play it next time so these are reasons why i like the way they do it this way i actually strongly prefer the sort of making lemonade out of lemons situation yes it increases the variance and normally all things being equal increasing variance isn't something that i like but I, i do like having to be flexible and having to kind of Intuit the engine that is hiding in this 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 random sea of nonsense. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I like Fifty First State as well, because you you know you're, you're sort of dynamically building your engine out of what cards are available to you as they come to you. Now, obviously, there are better and worse ways to do it. 
right? Uh, one of the problems I had with Everdell is that the cards that come into the system, you know, is the card you need is either there or it's not. And the cards very specifically work in tandem with each other. Namely, if you have this, you get to build this other card for free. Well, maybe I'll get access to it. Maybe I won't. Whereas in some of the better ones, like Race for the Galaxy, like even 51st State, you can pay an opportunity cost and try to mill the deck more efficiently uh, or get powers that let you do that. Anyhow, I'm. this is entirely my fault. We're going a little bit far afield. Just to circle back, that is one of the key differences between New Frontiers and Race for the Galaxy. Half of the quote-unquote things that you'll be building are available face-up in display in a common display, and most of the time you'll be able to plan around that. And I actually think that makes the game a little less dynamic to my taste, but that's an element that you prefer, and that's legit. All right, why don't we just go over some points, and then maybe we'll cover a bunch of the rule rule aspects that we wanted to talk about anyway. So I have in a, in a five-player game, it really didn't matter what actions you take, because along the bottom row, there's like seven, uh, eight actions, and in a five-player game, they're all, all the important ones are usually already taken anyway, whereas in you know a two- or three-player game, it's, it's it gives it a much better feel, because what happens is that all the actions are laid out across the board, uh, uh, whoever's the active player, they'll choose one of the actions. They'll get a special benefit, and everyone will do the action. For some reason, that part, I, I kind of agree with you, especially in larger player count games. You can just accept the fact that whatever action you need to get selected will get selected sooner or later, and you can do it then. I think part of that is because the benefit for choosing the actions were often not particularly appealing. You know, you either have the resources you need or you don't. If you desperately need that extra marginal resource from the, the action modus, well, then, yeah, you'll take the action if it's available. But other than that, I frequently found myself relatively indifferent as to whether I was the one that pulled the trigger or someone else did. Uh, you know, contrast this with some of the other uh, tension uh, of role selection that I even felt in, in Puerto Rico more frequently, quite frankly, because I, I felt that the action moduses in Puerto Rico were more substantial, where there was a thing that I literally could not do unless I was the one that took the action. Then if somebody else takes it up from under me, I then have to, you know, evaluate what else I'm going to do, uh, do with myself. The role selection just didn't didn't really click for me, quite uh, quite frankly. It was a fine way for the fundamental engine of the game to work. It just didn't add uh, extra tension or difficult trade-offs to me. I'll stick on that quick, just the rules, because there was a produce action that you have to put a dollar on every turn. And it seemed like almost like it was a game fix. And like, if, if you need like a game fix, then why don't you just make the action worth more all the time type thing? Yeah, and it's weird because in other action selection games like that, you put money or an incentive on all the rules that weren't selected in a round. I, 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 maybe I'm just too stupid to, re, to to see why produce was the odd thing out, but it was a strange asymmetry that I well, didn't think. Well, I think it's because they're trying to push the trading aspect, right? So if people take the produce action more often, then there'll be more goods introduced in the game and therefore more trading and maybe maybe in their playtesting there wasn't enough goods available for people. I just thought if that was the case, why not put a, a better benefit on the produce action? And that would save that. Another note I have here is uh, I think it would after it become awfully samey after a while. Like, I don't think there's that many avenues to go down. There's like, you know, selling goods, settling planets. And I think after a few plays, I think you might have played it out. A lot of the tokens can be flipped over because they're two-sided. So it's going to be different, quite different every time. And there's a lot of planets to choose from. But I think it... I don't think there's enough there to keep people's interests. That's one of the reasons why I think it does uh, give a game more legs sometimes to increase the variance as opposed to reduce it. Precisely because in 
race for the galaxy, you're going to be seeing a smaller subset of the cards. This is even before you start adding in expansions, uh, which is, you know, perhaps an unfair comparison, but but there you have it. In New Frontiers, you're going to see a substantial proportion of what the game has to offer every play because you're going to see a a whole bunch of developments. And yes, some of the developments are double-sided, but they're all available right from the outset as opposed to having to, again, craft your, your engine out of what you have available. So, yeah, I felt like after a single session, I'd seen far more of the tiles available than after any given game of race, for example. I agree. All right, now we have these components that are the civilians or the settlers. And I just thought it was like yet another added-on component and action. It's like, we need another action. It's like, well, let's add this whole other element of these. Yet another resource that you have to collect for some reason. and Colonists. Colonists, and it just didn't. Like, where are you getting them from? Or why are they... It just seemed like an attacked on... Well, Walker... It made no sense to me. When a mommy colonist and a daddy colonist love each other very much... I see. They settle. And anyway. um, I actually have a bigger problem with the presence of colonists because uh, colonists are an entirely new addition to New Frontiers. And what it does is it blunts the uniqueness of the military strategy in, in Race for the Galaxy. If you have enough military, you get to settle the world effectively for free. It's... Not really a high-risk, high-reward. It's more a question of it's either going to be free or impossible. So it's that kind of metric. You either have the military capacity or you don't. That element has been ported to New Frontiers in the sense that you either have the military capacity to conquer world or you don't. But on top of that, you need to pay the colonists whether it's a military world or a non-military world. And every world costs colonists. And so it really kind of made the military avenue less unique. It basically meant that you had to accumulate resources even if you were pursuing a military strategy, whereas before, the, the, the big benefit was, well, I've invested in my infrastructure. I've got this military out. I've kind of narrowed my horizons because I'm playing a slightly different game, but as a result, I get to do things very differently. Whereas here, I felt that the, the military avenue was just very, very similar to the normal colonist avenue, just with slightly different parameters. So I, I agree with you. The addition of colonists I don't think added much to the game space. I'm just going to, well, that's one of my other points. It's just very much the same as all the others. All the actions are exactly the same. Name the same, same icons, develop, produce, trade, sell. And they all do the same things. Really brought nothing new to the table. Well, I mean, there is the new stuff of the developments being available up front, the colonists, but, you know, we've talked about the relative merits of those. You like the, the developments being available. I don't. We Neither of us like the colonists very much. The uh, the game does introduce drafting. In New Frontiers, you draft worlds as opposed to pulling them randomly. This, I thought, was kind of a mixed bag, no pun intended. Uh, for one thing, it, it, the, the pace of the game grinds to a halt. Now, one of the things that Tom Lehman talked about in his uh, designer diary, because to be fair, a lot of these things that he's talking about are things that he made deliberate choices to differentiate New Frontiers for Race of the Galaxy. Part of the problem is, is that I adore Race of the Galaxy, and I think most of these changes are bad. Uh, but he said that one of the criticisms of Race for the Galaxy was the frenetic pace. And indeed, you can knock out Race for the Galaxy very quickly. Things happen at a very, very fast rate. Many rounds don't take very much time at all, especially if everybody calls the same role. So you only do one of the phases and then you move on to the next the next round. Apparently, some people find this disorienting. It is certainly disorienting if you're playing with experienced players who are unwilling to, to slow down for you. Uh, that having been said, though, I didn't see the need for thing to come for, for the pace of the game to come to a grinding halt. Whenever anyone calls Explore, what you have to do is you have to pull out seven worlds from the bag and then you draft them in turn order. As opposed to all the other roles like Develop or Settle or all these other things where, yeah, the, the, the player who, who took the role gets some minor advantage, but everyone can do it more or less at the same time. There's no reason to pause and slow down. So as a result, Explorer takes 
roughly three to four times longer than any other action. And that I did not appreciate in terms of the pace of the game. Agreed. And not only nothing new outside of Race for the Galaxy World, just nothing new as a board game. Like, it's just the same old engine building, pump your engine, nothing, no hook, nothing extraordinary, just the same old over again. I just just felt as though it was a... This is where I get most upset when it's a missed opportunity, right? Where you, you have this great world already, you know, created, right? In these two other games. And now you have a chance to make this whole sprawling board game and something new and inventive. And you just do the same thing over again with slight different tweaks. I just didn't understand it. Again, to give credit where credit is due... I don't think that there was an intent to make anything sprawling because one thing we haven't mentioned is even though sometimes the pace of the game falters a little bit and even though it's not as as lightning fast as Race for the Galaxy is, New Frontiers is a relatively brisk game. We're talking about an hour-ish, even with people who aren't particularly experienced. And there's some there's something to be said for that. So I don't think the intent was it for it to be a sprawling 90 to 200 to, to, well, to mean like experience. A, I don't mean like an epic thing. Sure. But I mean just like bring it to a full board game. I agree. And honestly, when and this this is one of my key criticisms of New Frontiers. Of the okay, so I didn't like Jump Drive. I thought Jump Drive was was, you know, basically a children's game. Uh, but setting aside Jump Drive, when you look at Race for the Galaxy and Roll for the Galaxy, yes, the uh, a lot of the art is recycled, a lot of the terms are recycled, but I really feel like the games feel different. I feel that there's a, a different design impetus behind them, and they have different challenges and different opportunities offered by those two different games. And I, I prefer race, but role, I think, is is worthy and, and interestingly different. When I'm playing New Frontiers, I really, really feel like I'm either playing Race for the Galaxy with a, an identity crisis or a weird slapped-together version of Puerto Rico. I, I really... Th- it, it, for the first time, of all these games that I've talked about, it really felt derivative. And I could really see where it was sort of a... a, 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 a I don't want to say paint by numbers, but it really did look like it was taking these existing formulas and just nudging them a bit for the sake of nudging them and for, for the sake of addressing criticisms, which I haven't internalized. So, again, that's my bias. But I really, it, it really did feel uh, for the first time like the, the, the series had run out of new ideas. Agreed. And my last bad point, that's actually a bad point because I have another point here that is not actually a bad point. Whatever. No player interaction. Just the same old, I took this before you could get it type thing. But other than that, no way to slow down other people. No. Well, the most salient way it introduced uh, player interaction, I thought, was was bad. Namely, the hate drafting that you can have in an explore situation. Because even though all the developments are, are ready face up, if you need a certain kind of world, you need it to come out of the bag. And you need it to be in a player order such that someone previous to you can't snake it, either because they want it or because they know that you need it. Yeah, because in a lot of the cases when someone's taken explore, you don't really care. You don't need it. So it's not as though you're looking for anything. Exactly. So it's like, oh, I'll just take this planet because he needs it. Precisely. Brutal. A, a lot of games of this elk don't really have much player interaction to begin with. I just feel that in terms of the way role selection works, you can make the role selection sort of the crux of where you get player interaction. And I felt that there was more player interaction in Puerto Rico. I felt that even there was a little bit more player interaction in terms of Race for the Galaxy, because in Race, you can try to dovetail off of other people's actions. There's a serious efficiency gain to be had if you can look over at somebody's engine and figure out, yeah, I think I know what they're going to pull this round, and so I can I, I can bank off that. So I agree. Even in terms of its immediate for, uh, forebears, I, I don't think it had much quality interaction. All right. Now, they weren't all bad points. I have quite a few good points here. Let's move on to them. 
The one that I accidentally put in the bad points was it doesn't outstay its welcome. It's a nice little short game. It doesn't seem to drag on too long. Nice end game conditions, which are there's quite a few of them. As far as that goes, that's great. I do like the way that it handles the secret the the secret goals, or at least they're only secret for a little bit. In both Race for the Galaxy and Roll for the Galaxy, the first expansion introduced goals, which are, you know, first to X and first to Y. And I actually like them because, although they're a little random, some of them are easier to get if you have certain start worlds as opposed to others, it really does offer one of the things that I like, which is short-term goals for either new players or people that are a little bit lost. You know, they can't quite get their engine going properly. They don't really necessarily see how they're going to get to a position to force the end game, But, you know, they're... So as a result, you get to look at the table and say, oh, well, these goals are in play. I can play towards one of those and hope that something occurs to me. And I I really like that added level of flexibility. And the way they do it in New Frontiers, I think, is actually kind of sort of clever. The way that it works is every time somebody selects a role, that player pulls the top three goals from a randomized deck. And they pick one, and that one is going to be in play. But it's going to be face down until somebody else picks a role. So one role will always be face down. It will apply at the end of the game and it will score, but only one player knows what that is. And so I thought it was a neat way to sort of not have all the goals be available up front, to have a little bit of player agency over how many goals enter the game and a little bit of player advantage in terms of having a little bit of lead time in terms of knowing what the goals are going to be. So that I thought was kind of cute. What did you hate about the marker? No, I just thought the fact that they just made it in action. Like if they had made the goals that at the at the end of every turn you you know bring one face down, turn one face up, just did it in an automatic sequence type thing instead of making it a roll that really didn't do anything that made you waste your turn grabbing the goal. I just thought it was well. But as as we both said, if you're in a position where you know, say you've got a world that you want to settle, but you know that someone's going to pull settle sooner or later anyway, you might as well take this action that doesn't do you a whole heck of a lot, but it does nothing for anybody else. So the opportunity cost is incredibly low. Agreed. All right, the fact that there's tons of planets to choose from, the bag is full, lots of flexibility, lots of stuff in there, all very interesting. The box generally, just as a note, people have been complaining about the size of the box. I'm, I agree that it's relatively large, especially for a game of its length and, and depth. But it's hard to complain about the quantity and quality of components because it's chock full of cardboard sprues, endless number of cardboard sprues. I, 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 it, plus, instead of in Race for the Galaxy to represent that a world's uh, got a good on it, you put another card face down and that serves some deck, uh, deck milling functions. But here they have these beautiful plastic cubes that look very, very sci-fi-y. They basically look at the QICs from Gaia Project and said, ha cute. This is what a real space cube looks like. Exactly. They're I very neat looking. that. Very nice components. I always ended up playing with them because they were very, very, very cool. So I, I wish I could use them in other games, to be honest. The fact that you can swing your engine very quickly in this game is great. Like, it's like, oh, I messed up on money. I, you know, I quickly need to get some more money. You can quickly turn that around and and get a little money engine going. I really like that part of the game. It's very streamlined. There's no, you know, weird fiddly bits. It's like, pick a roll, do your action. Like you said, the only time it slows down is when there's explore. Other than that, it flows all around the table very quickly. You know, move the turn order, go again. I like that part. It is probably the easiest game to explain, uh, except for perhaps San Juan. San Juan is probably a little bit easier to explain, but all of these other games that, that I've been constantly comparing to New Frontiers, it's probably the easiest to explain, because explaining Race for the Galaxy is hard and unpleasant. 
and a lot of people don't take to it. In particular, there's this tricky aspect of, you know, this is a world, this is development, these are different kinds of worlds, blah, blah, blah. And to a certain extent, New Frontiers preserves some of the trickier distinctions there, the distinction between military and non-military and windfall and non-windfall, et cetera, et cetera. But I got to say, I was girding myself for an unpleasant rules explanation experience because role and race for the galaxy are both relatively tricky to teach. Uh, New Frontiers is much more accessible in yeah. that sense. So my last point is the fact that I think that out of all three games, this is my favorite. It's the easiest to explain, easiest to get to the table, even though I find so much fault in it. Yeah, it's unfortunate that you prefer this to, to Race to the Galaxy. You've only played Race like a couple times, though. That's true. That, that being the, I'm not saying it is, it is a superior game, but in the gameplays that I've had of the other games, I, I would prefer this at the moment. That's fair. To sort of sum up, when reading, looking in hindsight, looking at the designer diary of Thomas Lehman for New Frontiers, it really is unsurprising that I find it such a pale imitation of the other games because all his design goals seemed to me priorities that I would not want. So removing some of the tension from Race for the Galaxy of using cards to pay for other cards, of having to make conscious choices about how to tune your engine, about how to tune your tableau based on the random influx of cards you've got to get to make the strategic and tactical choices of that nature, of front-loading all the developments and having to make all those front-loaded decisions. You know, both of those design decisions right off the bat should have informed me that this was not it was not being pitched to my preferences in terms of game design. Now, how much would I like New Frontiers if I weren't already a massive Race for the Galaxy fan? I don't know because I am incredibly irredeemably biased in that I adore Race for the Galaxy and I think that all the ways in which New Frontiers is different is for the worse. But I will point out one area though where I think that it is unambiguously the case that I can semi-objectively point to Race for the Galaxy being superior. You can get Race for the Galaxy and one, two, or even three expansions and still not pay nearly as much money as you would for a copy of New Frontiers and you're going to get more variety, more planets, more developments, more stuff, more variability in, in, in game setup, more different player factions, in Race for the Galaxy with even a single expansion in it than you're going to get from New Frontiers. So, you know, for, for all these reasons, if you're a huge Tom Lehman fan and you want to see the system development, uh, system develop, you know, maybe take a look at New Frontiers. But my sincere recommendation for anyone who seriously enjoys either Race or Roll for the Galaxy, read his designer diary and ask yourself, are these changes that I want? And that, I think, will help inform you about whether or not New Frontiers is for you. I don't, I don't think I'm quite as down on it as you are, despite the fact that, you know, the, 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 the similarity to a game I vastly prefer kind of hurts in a strange way. Uh, I'm probably done with New Frontiers because I would just rather play Race for the Galaxy all day long. Uh, but I, I, I do think that it's a solid, middleweight, role selection, engine-producing engine Euro game. But that's a really, really, really crowded field. And that is New Frontiers by Real Grand Games. Now on to the topic of the week, which in my mind is, how many times is too many to go back to the same game mechanic pool with the same theme? So I think in the case of New Frontiers, the answer is they should have stopped after a roll. <laughs> Just to, you know, to sum up our, our, our previous discussion. But so that's my thought on that topic. You probably, I don't know if you feel the same way though, given that you think that you're not a huge fan of the other designs and New Frontiers, although not to your liking, is marginally better. I wouldn't say so much better. It's just the fact that it's more accessible. Fair enough. So, yeah, it's just I just want to talk about, you know, why do they do this? Should they do this? Is it helping our industry? Is it helping the retailers? Is it is it good for board games? All I have written on my list is a list of games I want to talk about that I think do this, but hopefully it'll, it'll fan out into the rest. 
So why do you think companies do this? I think it's probably because they it is a known market. People already know the name, so they put out another game with slight rule changes, like we're talking about Pandemic, maybe, or A Ticket to Ride, where they it's a very well-known name, so just change it up very slightly, but use the same core mechanisms and put out yet another game under the same elk. Well, it's the same reason that sequels are popular, right? It's easier for both the people making it and the people who might be apt to produce it to be able to rely on those known quantities. The less cynical, less market-driven version that I would point to is probably that game design is a fundamentally iterative process. It's much more iterative than, say, you know, novel writing or making movies or even making video games. Some video games are more iterative than others, but in terms of game design, you really can just offer a slight improvement here and slight nudge there, a slight retheming there, and that does get you to interesting places. Now, watching this, watching this evolve, it really depends on how good the designers are that you really see whether this leads to improvements or shortfalls because, you know, lots of bad designers will look at a game and not understand why it's good, tinker with things, and then make it vastly worse. And even just within Pandemic, I think you can see that occur. We talked about Fall of Rome last week, and we both really like Paolo Mori, and it really does look like what he brought to the table in his collaboration with Matt Leacock was it really took the series in a new and interesting direction in an equally worthy way. Whereas if you look at some of the versions that I like less, I don't know if you've tried Reign of Cthulhu or uh, even Rising Tide. Those I thought were and many of the elements in Pandemic Legacy, although we disagree about those, I think, as well. Uh, some of those, I think, were instances of you know tinkering with the formula where they should have left well enough alone and looked at different ways of changing things. Well, there's a lot of cases where, like in the case of Gaia Project and Terra Mystica, I think those were great changes and a great new setting and a great new theme. And I think they did a great job at bringing out a, a new, totally different game, even though it relied back on mostly the same mechanisms. Yeah, in the case of a lot of uh, relatively themeless Euros, you can just tinker with the fundamental setups and not really worry about things. Like, there's no reason why the mechanisms of Gaia Project could not have been ported into a second edition of Terra Mystica had they been so inclined. So in that case, I think it's just more or less purely an issue of, of slight tweaks and an iterative retheme. The, there's one series I'd like to ask you about, though, because I do not have much experience with it, and that is specifically Axis and Allies. I haven't played Axis and Allies in a long time, and I've only ever played the base game, whereas you, I know, have played tons of different versions, and, may, and someday we are, in fact, looking forward to trying Axis and Allies Zombies. Agreed. The game that shouldn't be but is. Well, that's the, that particular one is exactly... It's exactly just... Yet again, Axe and Allies with just another rule tacked on the top. I see. It just said, you know, even has cards that you can just play normal Axe and Allies and you can, you know, just leave the zombie part out. And it even says at the beginning, here's the one page of rules that are different just for the zombie part. Oh, and wow. if you already know Axe and Allies, then you're almost ready to go. Just read this one page and off you go. So that was another one that I have is like, you know, man, you could have, you know, done something here finally, you know, brought a new breath of air into Axe and Allies and done something different. But. But they did not. Well, Axis and Allies, given that it's already kind of in the realm of historical fantasy anyway, you know, the, the, the fidelity to the actual historical events or the sort of uh, verisimilitude of, of, of uh, an actual concept are, are already lacking in the Axis and Allies series. But every time I see that, so there's Guadalcanal, there's... I was say, th- those three that they brought out, the D-Day, the Guadalcanal, and the Battle for the Bulge, those are all very different. They have, uh, like, timing mechanisms and different things that happen that they do a fantastic job of. But, you know, every, you know, four or five years, there you see another Axis and Allies, just standard edition, yet again come out, and it's just like, you know, 
you know, it's okay, guys. You can do something different. <laughs> you know, because if anyone wants Acknowledge, they can they can pick up, you know, the multitudes of copies that are out there. They, sure. So, you know. There, I think we can safely assume it's just crass commercialism operating. Yeah, and it's weird. To a certain extent, my tolerance for how much tweaking you can put in the system is really about my enthusiasm for the core system to begin with. So the most the most absurd version of this, and it, it's, if anything, as tortured or more tortured than the uh, sort of pedigree I gave for New Frontiers, there's the whole Lost Cities series of games by Reiner Knizia. First, it was a two-player card game. Then he made a multiplayer game called Celtus. Then there was the Lost Cities, the board game version of Celtus, which added some rule, rule changes. Then there was the card version of Celtus. So it's the card version of a board game, which was a board game version of a card game to begin with. And then there are several expansions to Celtus, some of which are superficially similar but very different and then there are the ones that add entirely new boards and fundamentally different like the oracle and you know i while i really enjoy playing lost cities the board game and all the Celtus expansions and and i i, I do enjoy looking at the, the differences i recognize that that's only because i'm a huge Reiner knizia fanboy and i i really do lo- like watching him tweak game mechanics if i didn't like lost cities to begin with would I think this was interesting or just him milking a cash cow? I would probably just think it was him milking a cash cow, but... All right, since we talked about Axe and Allies, I'll go to Risk. Risk has come out with tons of different editions using the same core mechanic of, you know, rolling three dice, pairing them off. So they seem to take on these really good themes and genres that people really enjoy, and sometimes they put, like, a, this cool little mechanic on the top and the overlay that makes it unique than all the rest. Well, here's the funny thing. The fundam- so, so that fundamental mechanic that you, that you point to in Risk, the, the attacker rolls up to three, defender rolls up to two, you pair them off, defender wins ties. That part, I think, is pretty good. It's not, a, it's not some sort of earth-shattering combat mechanism, but it, it's, it's fine. The problems that Risk runs into are just the standard problems of your multiplayer conflict games. The, the, the trick is, is that in the sea of nonsense... That is the risk, the universe of risk variants, because you're right, they are actually different, usually not very much, but they are, at, at the very least, they're going to have a different map, and a different ge- geography can change things substantially. I, I maintain that the, the Star Wars original trilogy slash Mass Effect versions of Risk, which are the same game, uh, the same game as Reskin, is actually quite neat, because they've, they've tackled the, the multiplayer conflict problems in a number of ways with the asymmetric victory conditions and so forth. The, pretty much the only risk thing that they keep are the reinforcement rules, which are fine, and the combat resolution, which is, you know, by itself I think is okay. And that those series, actually, I find the most frustrating, right? When it's a series of games that I don't care about, like Axis and Allies, whatever, I can safely ignore them, and, and, and I know that the people who love all the subtle variations can go and have the subtle variations for whatever reason. And when it's a series that I know I like, I'm happy to just keep watching a master's designer work. But when I know for a fact that there have been good risk variants, that makes me doubt the market and feel paranoid. And the FOMO kicks in real hard. I don't know if you have that experience with anything. No, I have not. Okay. The other thing that I'll mention just in the the context of mass market is the only Steven Universe board game that I'm familiar with is Steven Universe Monopoly. And I'm a huge fan of Steven Universe. I'm not that big a fan of Steven Universe. Well, we talk about Monopoly, too, because it has more versions than we can talk about for the and, same thing. And they seem to change the least, right? So we talk about Axis and Allies. They, they, they change things up. Obviously, it's a slightly different audience. R- even core Risk games, they change things up to, to, to varying degrees. But the Monopoly games, am I wrong? They always seem just the same. Exactly the same. Just change the properties, punch it out. 
get the money. Which is weird because it's not even like a different company. That company, USAopoly, that churns out endless risk variants is the same company that's churning out a lot of these Monopoly variants. I I wonder why Monopoly is the one that doesn't change. Oh, because they know they'll sell anyway. They don't need need to put in the 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 effort. The same is true of it. Like, look, most of the risk variants, I think, are probably equally crass commercial ripoffs. I don't think that they're thinking, oh, well, this change will really appeal to the hobbyist gamer uh, shouting into a can in the basement. True. I, I might... I don't know if it's, this is just shooting in the dark, but I'm sure. wondering if, if a designer actually comes to this, comes to them and say, I have, I have this variant. Whereas in, with monopolies, they just punch a button and say, horsies, trolls, <laughs> dollies, this country, and off they go into the mass market. I should find this bot and it could be my new co-host. It's true. What else do I have here? I have Ticket to Ride. I'm wondering if this particular example just shows the weaknesses in the games. Like when you have to come out with a different version to make it interesting, then I wonder if maybe there's a fundamental problem with your game. That's just you being cynical because... I think you're lying. You would... <laughs> it's a lie. Again, I love it, Ticket to things Ride. look very different from the inside out for the outside in. Like somebody who doesn't give a crap about Reiner Knizia would probably look at the design pedigree of Lost Cities and roll their eyes real hard. And sure, once you get to Celtus the card game, which is the card game version of a board game version of a card game, things start to look pretty stupid. And look, if you're super into... Ticket to Ride is one of those interesting situations where they tend to vary... The, the, the gameplay varies by varying levels. Like, it, it's, it is a bit like... Um, it, 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 there's more commonality for a lot of the Ticket to Ride variants than there is even in a lot of the different Risk games. But every once in a while, there's a, a, a weird Ticket to Ride version that's substantially different from the other ones. I haven't played a whole lot of Ticket to Ride variants because I... I, Alan Moon's sort of tableau drafting thing just doesn't really do much for me. Uh, but, you know, you have to admire that at least some of them are, are a little different. Or maybe not. Maybe you can hate them all equally. I will. Okay. I give you permission. One here, I, it's not a, a great example, but Simon has this group of games is like a dice pool mechanism, and they just sort of base these different themes around the same dice pool mechanism. Like they have the others, they have uh, Agents of Moloch and this new die, die again, die further, get stabbed and die game is also yet... That's Dead Cthulhu, death may die again? Yes. You know, so you, you know, create your pool, roll them all out, get your successes versus your thing and, and go again. You, you really think that they're sufficiently similar that you'd, you'd want to... I need to play more of them to find out, but I just mean, you know, I looked, I looked through the rules and it's like, oh, it's a dice pooler, you know, you, you know, you know, grab your you know fistful of dice, and I get two for that, four for this. You know, get my fourteen dice together and see what I get. Hmm. So the reason I passed on die, die, death again, coma. Sure, Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> to sum up, that basically all the permutations I've had in my own in my own gaming tastes, namely series where I don't really like any of them, and I I, I can safely ignore all of them. The series where I enjoy all of them and will pre- will play pretty much all of them, and then there are the ones where it really does vary. Like, there are some Risk games that I think are cool and the rest got, the rest I ignore. There have been some versions of Pandemic that I thought were great and some that I thought were weak, and so I, I, I leave those beside. I really do appreciate the fact that these, these kinds of series exist because, you know, for the hardcore, they get to have the slight variation of the thing they, know, they already love. And at the same time, for someone like me who broadly doesn't like them, there's always the chance that there's going to be some new spark that finally lets me access what everyone else has been loved, loving all this time. 
Yes, with all my negativity. That being aside, I agree with all that. So, same thing with Catan. Like when you have different groups of people and they, you know, they play their one game. When they bring in another version of this, it's much easier to get them involved with this new stuff when it's something they recognize, right? They say it's all Catan with a new theme. You know, it's the Game of Thrones or it's the Ice Age, and the, those are all fantastic. There's been some Catan variants that have been terrible, but you know, there are some that are very, very well done, and and the theme comes comes out in the way they've changed it up. It's good that you mentioned Catan, because that's a good example. I don't like core Catan, but there are a lot of Catan variants that I really like. I like Starfarers, I like Starship. Some of the histories have been very, very interesting. And it, it, it's actually, that that's one of those areas where I think the branding might, for some audiences, really, really, really hurt the game. Because we as snob gamers look down on Catan and assume that, you know, whatever. Because we don't like the base game for a variety of reasons, some good, some bad. And some of the variations are genuinely interesting, very good gamers games that have the sort of same flavor of Catan that's appealing, but they get rid of a lot of the gameplay elements that, that don't leave us satisfied. So, you know, sometimes I, I, I wish that Claus Tuber spent a little bit more time playing with some of these ideas outside the Catan brand. But So that's what we have to say on the topic of how many versions is too many. If you have no interest in anything to do with the Patreon, we suggest that you stick your fingers in your ears and start singing very loudly now. We'd like to stress at the outset that we are going to keep doing this for free. We don't, we're not going to give a lower level of service to people who don't pledge. We're not going to ask you if you've pledged before we respond to you in, by email or Twitter or anything like that. I mean, obviously, there are going to be uh, sp- uh, special benefits for those that do. But short of that, the things that we've been doing up till now, we're not going to stop doing just because you're not sending us money. And again, we're only doing this in response to viewer requests. We wouldn't we wouldn't be doing this if people didn't ask, hadn't asked for it. Uh, so, I mean, this is all your fault. You made us do it. Exactly. But for those that are all curious, we are just going to spend a little bit of time ta- walking through uh, our Patreon again. We've posted a number of times on Facebook and Twitter just talking about this, about the whys and wherefores. But now that it's actually live, we can spend a little bit of time talking about the different tiers. And uh, we thought we'd give you a little bit of guidance. So, Walker, why don't, why don't you start talking about this? All right. So we have the tiers here. The first one is the Swagger tier. That's, the, that's a great tier. Man, you can swagger that in and out everywhere you like. <laughs> what the fuck was that? With consent, Walker. <laughs> Only with consent. Oh. First tier is swagger. It is a dollar a month, and you're just in you're you're just flat out superior to all other people. You're just better than all the other human beings that don't have swagger. It's so true. The next is three dollars a month, which is pure swagger. The best kind of swagger. And the pure swaggers will get the unedited episode. So like all the fantastic lines that I just said that thankfully will be edited out. My Lord. Little known fact, I actually speak for five hours and we have to edit out all of that. I know. I, we're not, we don't, and the other fact is that we don't actually record at the same time. That's why my little bits are so short. Mark just rants on and on. I sort of just like, as he's, you know, I listen to the recording of Mark, put my little things in and then he edits it in. I agree. Walker said, soon as are delicious. And so the other salient benefit of this tier is you're actually going to get it before I have to edit it, which means you get the episode early. Actually, a number of people have commented, and one of the reasons why we offered this as a tier is that they really, really want the uh, podcast specifically for a Tuesday morning commute. I don't know why people say this, but it's true. A number of people have said it. So if you really want uh, uh, your survey wrong about games on Tuesday, very early Tuesday morning, this is the tier for you. They have five-hour commutes? Because that's what usually how long an unedited version of our podcast is. Well, okay, maybe I'll cut out my arbitrarily reading a chapter of War and Peace every time. But uh, other than that. All right, then after 
pure swagger, we have swagger to spare. So in addition to everything above, we're also going to make special bonus episodes that will be exclusively for people from this tier and higher. Only the cool kids have it. And that's $5 a month. Next is the swagger commissioner. Like, there are some times in your life where you might think you've got it all figured out. And then you're the swagger commissioner. And then you know, you know, you know you're there. You're on the top of the mountain. So this tier is $10 a month. And in this tier, you get to ask, send us in questions. And depending on what they are, we will uh, answer them. But only from people that have this tier and higher. And we uh, fully encourage you to make them as combative as you want. Uh, The tentative name of the segment is Why So Wrong? Uh, So I I look forward to all of your questions about Bunny Kingdom and or Terraforming Mars. The next one is $20 a month, and it is the Swagger Overlord. So Mark's going to explain this tier more because I I don't want to go on record as agreeing to any of this. The Swagger Overlord is for those that are truly devoted to this podcast, and these people really need to be pitied more than praised. But So we recognize that explaining rules is hard. Neither of us really like videos that explain rules. They often get things wrong. They don't tend to organize things in good ways, and they don't really leave you in a position to uh, play the game going forward because there's not really a reference. So in order to solve this and just to add a a service for for people who like it, we are going to video conference in and explain a game to your group by whatever video conferencing software you tend to want to use. And we're going to be available for questions so we we can help you hit the ground running and really try to help serve whatever game night you have planned. Now... And we definitely will not mock any decisions that people make during the game. We will be very patient, and we will never downplay any terrible moves or awful decisions or every time you forget a rule, we'll never make any sort of snide comments. Well, depending on the game, we're probably not going to be creepily watching them the entire time. But yes, we'll be available... I will. We'll be available only through the secret cameras that we will have installed in their living rooms. We'll be available to answer questions and all this. Anyway, this is just something to uh, so, some service that we can give to people, so we can have a little bit of uh, interaction with with uh, the, the the fans who have decided to become Swagger Overlords. Anyway, so if any of this sounds appealing to you, you can find our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/swag. That's S V W A G. Uh, and if none of this appeals to you at all, then that's fine. That's completely okay, and you don't have to give us anything. We will keep giving you a podcast, whether you want it or not. So that's going to close us out for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. Or you can check us out on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>